0: everybody welcome back to the coach's corner on the fitter and faster platform today i'm really excited to have somebody who has gotten his way back into racing back into full-time compete mode almost while also keeping one foot squarely in the coaching pool my guest today austin sirhoff austin welcome to the coach's corner
1: thank you for having me michael and um Appreciate the shout out to the coaching. That is also still very much going on as I'm doing all this in the pool.
0: Yeah, your, your Instagram and your social media has been blowing up with all the different things you're doing as far as racing goes. You were down at the Richmond meet where you actually posted a few lifetime bests. You also, and I, I got a lot of people wanting me to ask you this, had some interesting recovery cold water plunges. Let's, let's break the ice today quite clearly. <laughs> talking about your your recovery methods between some swims
1: how how long have you been sitting on that pun man were you just like (laughs) chopping at the bit before we started this podcast like i cannot wait for the break the ice line Listen,
0: Um, listen man it's 12 degrees here in rochester
1: today so it was easy that was uh that was a good one so like yeah let's break the ice uh you want the river plunge that i did um It stems back to how I started the new year, actually. I woke up, uh, my wife and I woke up New Year's morning, and I'd been a fan of uh, Wim Hof, whose breathing techniques I work into my racing, my pre-race routine and what I do every day. I take cold showers from time to time. And, you know, every, it seems like this is the year of all years where people are like, I want to do X to start the year and, you know, feel a fresh start, feel cleansed. So the very first thing I wanted to do to start the new year was a cold plunge. So I hopped in the frigid Chesapeake Bay. Uh, it was 44 degrees. Um, Fitter Faster actually posted it on the Instagram. It was very nice of, the, of everybody to do that. And my dog actually followed me in there, the little psycho. Yeah, he... I mean, we're talking 15 degrees below an ice bath and my dog went in and then came back out. He was like, whoa, immediately regret this. <laughs> uh, and I liked it so much that I decided to do it weekly and I wasn't going to let a swim meet get in the, way with, uh, in the way of that. So Saturday after prelims, I did a quick swim, um, just like an out and back because I wanted to progress from a plunge as I go. I was on week three and I was like, it's time to do some strokes, take a swim. And that was only about 10 seconds. So I was like, I really need to like do something cool with this, Like something that is actually impressive instead of just hopping in and hopping out every time, because you got to make progress. It's all of this is always about progress. So day two, I was like, wait, I usually have access to some sort of ice bath at these USA swimming meets. They usually have a communal ice bath you can sit at and the athletes can just hop in. They maintain it. It's the great temp and it's a great way to recover uh, after your freelance race. So, I combined the two. I was like, you know what? There's no ice bath at this meet. We have the social distance. I need to get a cold plunge done. So, And it was a beautiful, beautiful day on that Sunday. I think it was like 45, 50 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. So I hopped in the James River and I waded in <laughs> to about my belly button. And I stayed there for 25 minutes, just making FaceTime calls with my wife and some friends, uh, posting to social media. I was literally on my phone while these People are walking down the street, like texting with, you know, my belly button up to, up to my belly button in 40 degree river water. And people are like, huh? And I'd be like, Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing it. Uh, but it worked, man. It literally had the same effects as the ice bath. And my legs felt amazing that night for the hundred final.
0: Do you feel like Austin, some of that is really positive in the way that it reflects mentally and emotionally during, during competitions and maybe some of your hard training?
1: is really important so like at the meet i spent a lot of meets and we all do you know you come home from prelims you eat a massive breakfast and you go to sleep for three hours and that's all you do all day and that's fine you know i'm gonna do that at most meets you know when i go to the olympic trials this summer i'm gonna do a whole lot of nothing um but i really just wanted to explore maybe something a little bit more balanced like Let's get some sunshine, right? Let's get out in nature. Let's take, uh, let, let me take my mind off the meat for a couple hours and actually not just physically decompress by relaxing and resting and napping and doing all those good things that you're supposed to do. You know, I took a nap that, that afternoon once I got back from the ice bath, um, but also injecting a little bit of what's good for you in overall life outside the swimming too. And yeah, it was great for my emotional state. I went 50.0, like Four that morning. <laughs> and so, I, you know, if I had been inside all day, I'd be in my mind, like, God, what could I have done? I wanted a 49 so bad, just sitting on it all day and burrowing deeper and deeper in my mind. And instead, I, I said, you know, what? let's go do something fun that's also beneficial instead. And I think that day it worked really, really well.
0: I, think I went so 49. Too.
1: And to spoiler, I went 49 that night. It worked. <laughs>
0: that's right. <laughs> So I want to dive into this, and I know we had just talked about what we were going to start out with, but I think this is great content, especially for coaches and athletes to keep in mind. When we go through the age group progression and even into senior swimming, we tend to get a little superstitious, right, about our routines. We we have Mm -hmm. to make sure we follow this routine, follow this schedule when we're at a big meet like that, when we're at juniors for our first time, and we really want to stick to that. And all day, all we're thinking about is the performance at night Mm -hmm. Uh, with the many years of experience you've had of extraordinarily high level meets gaining a little bit of perspective between your performances from prelims and finals at this competition and maybe you've done it in the past Mm -hmm. really benefited you at night at an age where we're not typically seeing we're starting to see more of it right as the sport evolves Mm -hmm. but we're not seeing great best times and drops like you had at this meet Mm
1: -hmm. And, um, on top of that, I I wonder if old me could have, cause I I would get really wiped in prelims. Like I've always been a very like muscular swimmer for my events, especially in the 200 when I was doing a 200 IM and a 200 back. And I would often go slower at night because I'd be so wiped from prelims and now I'm training less and I went faster (laughs) at night. Right. Seeing things talk about the superstition, seeing things in the aggregate has been really important to me. And, and I'm going to bring this up again later. I know that I will when we talk about any sort of training or anything like that. But I also was superstitious, even though I didn't really have a warm up routine or, you know, I wasn't super great about um, other sorts of routines besides hitting an ice bath, besides getting a, a, a Epsom salt bath every night. Uh, I was superstitious about maybe the playlist that I listened to, or what was I supposed to eat for breakfast? And yeah, I guess that's a better way to put it than superstition is I always felt like I was supposed to do things at these meets. And what I was contradicting myself was it would usually change from meat to meat. I never actually developed a good meat routine. So it was this awful balance of superstition that I'm supposed to be doing something, but then not even developing the routine work. And people benefit from routine at Big Meats, by the way. You know, you can't control a lot about Big Meats and the best thing you can do is hone in on yourself and control what you can control. And routine can definitely help with that. But what I meant about the aggregate is, if you you know that you need to warm down for 25 minutes and then go home and take an hour nap and then eat X for breakfast, Sometimes it's, okay, sometimes it's okay to say, okay, I only had, you know, 20 minutes to warm down. This happened at US Open back in November. They closed the pool because they had to clean it for the day when I was like 15 minutes into my warm down from the 50 freestyle. And I was like, okay, it's okay. I got my 15 minutes, you know, as long as I'm staying, you know, let's say like 90, a 95%, like an A grade or an A minus grade on everything I'm doing you know, I'm still going to eat a good meal, I'm still going to get a nap, seeing the big picture boxes that I'm checking, then I'm still going to get my need, get what I need from everything that I'm doing, if that makes sense. It's not, I need to listen to this song at 6pm, it's more hit big picture boxes, and understand what they're doing to set you up for success. And then you give yourself a little, you know, a couple percentage points of wiggle room that if your routine isn't exact, you can still fall back on it as a routine and trust it. Right, I would have loved to get an a minus in school, so anytime I'm like, you know what that i got I get myself about a ninety two for sticking to everything that I could do throughout that. you know i after the hundred prelims, I talked to a couple of people in the warm down pool for like ten minutes instead of warming down, but I looked at the aggregate I got myself an ice bath that that is a bonus compared to what I did yes the day before for the fifty, so I guess overall, when you're at a meet really, really try to zoom out and see the big picture of what you're doing and understand perspective and give yourself credit in the aggregate to sticking to whatever routine instead of making it an obsessive, uh, superstitious type thing.
0: What, What an incredible perspective, right? And aren't there times when you're thinking about this now and even in your explanation to me in the last two minutes, boy, I wish I had thought this way as a younger athlete. Mm -hmm. Me too. And by the way, this is
1: hard earned, because this is not how I was up until age 25 when I first retired. So I agree with you, you know, put me in a time machine and put my 30 year old brain in an eight year
0: old's body. It's got to be pretty fun for you now, Austin. You're working at one of the best educational institutions in the world at Johns Hopkins University, which also mm-hmm. happens to have a top 10 Division III swimming program and traditionally has had athletes perform extraordinarily well. And it's led by another North Baltimore alum and Scott Armstrong. How, how have you taken your experiences as an athlete? and parlayed them into helping the program at Johns Hopkins. Well, that's evolved over the years in a
1: really nice way. I hope, I mean, we'll see this year, especially after what I've experienced, you know, I, I will call it just from my perspective, the success I've experienced over the last couple months as an athlete. But, um, and by the way, Scott, MBAC alum and MBAC, MBAC coaching alum, he was actually my coach on and off for most of my life g- growing up, whether it was my head coach or an assistant in the group I was a part of. So Scott and I have a pretty amazing relationship and I really cherish being able to be there. But back to your question. Um, so when I first started there in the 17, 18 season, I was coming a couple times a week as a volunteer. And it was really, really important to me. And I actually looked at a couple cover letters where I wrote this in there that I wanted athletes to feel like they had an ally through the process of college, you know, like really play into the young guy card that I had. Cause at this point, I was 26 years old, uh, going into 27 throughout that, that year. And relative to coaching peers I was younger because I stayed in the sports till I was 25 while they were you know coaching from 21 onward so I was a very youthful coach and I really wanted to parlay just how recently I'd experienced swimming into helping uh, understand the athletes put my brain into their brain and just try to empathize with them as best they can it worked out really well in that way that Um, I really felt like I was good at making connections with the athletes. Um, My first year at Hopkins and then, you know, UVA, my second year, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but when I was a volunteer there, it was really important to me to develop relationships with the athletes and just kind of trust that the system, just trust that you as a whole are a good coaching staff. Again, the aggregate, just understand that we're getting the athletes what they need, you know, day to day, generally, and to really focus on developing the personal connection with them. I think that's super important. Now I'm also speaking as someone, again, my first year, I had very little pressure on me as a twice a week volunteer into a part-time coach in the, in the second semester of the year. So I had space you know, to do that. And the answer to your question back to how have I parlayed that experience? Once I started doing fitter, faster clinics, and in 17 onward. And once I started slowly getting myself back into swimming and I was really experiencing the workouts that I was actually giving my athletes, especially in the sprint group, um, I would actually test out the skills on myself first. And this one's good. This one's garbage. Um, and I felt good to be able to give them something that I was willing to give myself. Now that's not true when I'm working the 400 IMers you know, and I'm giving them a breaststroke workout that is, you know, like a 3000 worth of breaststroke throughout the practice. But, you know, if I'm crushing people on racks and towers one day, I'll be like, you know what, guys, I did this on Tuesday, and you're in better shape than me. So let's, let's get to work. I'm not trying to kill you. Experiential learning is has been super important to me. And then selfishly, I've really enjoyed it because the best form of learning is teaching. So by teaching these athletes stuff, I'm also weeding out inefficiencies in my own training where I give them something and it doesn't quite connect with them, or maybe it's not the best thing uh, ever that they tried that day. Then I weed that out of my training. And so the two have been in a really nice uh, concert with each other and the evolution as a coach and an athlete for me, I know we're pulling it back to me instead of the coaching, but Um, it's been a really nice evolution over the last couple of years. I hope, I hope the athletes have enjoyed it. I went back to Hopkins in the 1920 season. I'm going to be back with them this year when we get started on February 1st, Monday of next week. And I'd like to continue to parlay what I've learned into uh, coaching them again, because I haven't been able to do that since March and I miss it very much.
0: So Austin, let's say we're on the pool deck at Hopkins and you have a, you know, late 19-year-old, early 20-year-old come up to you and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling right now with the schedule, and COVID's been such a challenge, and we all know Johns Hopkins is going to be academically challenging. Mm-hmm. What types of things are you saying to help mentor those athletes through these uncertain times? Because a lot of us in the coaching community right now are doing are being more aware of a lot of the psychological, emotional effects that this pandemic has caused. And though I want to avoid talking about the pandemic, I think it is important and it's vital for coaches to understand their role right now as somebody that these kids can rely on to provide an experience every day that takes them away from the distractions of this year. So what would your advice be to a student athlete like that? That is, thank you for that
1: question, because that is something that's super important to me is to provide a safe space where the, not that the pandemic doesn't exist. You know, we're not, I'm not going to act like we can just plug our fingers in our ears and say, and by the way, on my own podcast, not to plug it. I have also had this like almost like stubborn rule of like, I don't want to talk to the pandemic when I talk to people about their careers, you know, I'm trying to focus on the athletics. So that being said, the athlete comes up to me, um, I would really ask them to to look at the big picture and come from a place when I'm talking to them that I trust that they are doing the best they can in school and in the water because all these kids at Hopkins and, you know, all college swimming programs, the vast majority of kids are these amazing kids that are busting their butts. So what I would say was anything you did between March and now Because again, we haven't had pool access since March. And what I would tell them is everything you've done between then and now was a bonus, was an advantage. You're a division three swimmer. We were literally not allowed to coach you, okay? Unless, you know, people requested a workout here or there. You could, you know, be like, hey, maybe maybe you want to do this. I don't know. Anything you did on your own was above zero, was above you know, normal, above zero, you, you moved forward throughout the pandemic. If you need to like, just kind of take a step back and detach from the pressure of being perfect today, then please do that. And look at, again, the aggregate between then and now, if you stayed ahead, you're still ahead. So put some of that pie chart of your brain. Yeah. Put it in a school. That's fine. When you come to practice, I still expect you to do everything that I ask you to do um, to the best you can, but maybe detach from the results of what you put up in practice. Maybe don't worry about your times in these 50s, in these 50s breaststroke that I'm about to give you, right? Maybe focus on your stroke count. Maybe focus on the effort that I'm expecting of you. Like if, if I'm saying, hey, try to hold 28s put in the effort that it takes to go 28s. and then whatever you're at today, that's where you're at today, right? It's, it's really a detachment from uh, results expectations. I know the whole process of results thing has been pounded into the ground and it's not anything new when I say that. It's worked really well for me as, a, as an athlete so far to be able to invest in my process, but just look at the big picture, seriously. Just try your best to look at the big picture and understand that you are just such a good, hardworking kid. The fact that you're here at Hopkins, you don't have a scholarship, you're on this varsity team while you're a double major, you know, let's say you're like pre-med and then also by bioengineering. I'm I'm already goofing this up. This is why I didn't go to Hopkins. It's okay. Um, just giving yourself some credit. And um, just to kind of give people an idea of what I mean by that, um, like I was kind of bummed about my swimming career when I retired in 16, and then doing fitter, faster camps and seeing like how excited people were to learn from me because of the career I had gave me perspective on, wow, I'm actually this good at swimming, right? And so I would tell the kid, you're actually this good at everything that you're doing right now. So just give yourself some credit and understand that you're ahead right now and take stock of that. You're not behind, you're ahead right now. And just take stock of it from that perspective.
0: And then every step you take from there will be forward. If we focus on that, I think we're gonna be in the right headspace for when things get back to any sort of normal schedule, Mm -hmm. which I think is gonna be faster than a lot of people think. Uh, Well, we've already Um, seen it.
1: People are already going fast, man. I mean, people are going really, really fast. I think I'm, I was not aware of this article. And so this is kind of off the cuff. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the advantage of the pandemic for a long time. And it feels so uncouth to say it. So I'm not, I might give like 10% of how I'm feeling to this. Um, But that's honestly how I've tried to think about it since about April of last year is Am I safe? Am I secure? Are my wife and I putting a roof over our heads? Okay, yes, and that in and of itself is privilege. Okay, so please, anyone listening, I understand that. But moving forward, take stock of that and then move forward from there. And anything you move forward with is an advantage for yourself. So I'm gonna have to read that article because it speaks to my approach basically since April of last year of how can I move forward? How can I see the positive? how can i um you know take advantage of what's going on and i guess you know it probably comes from a long history for me of taking advantage of things like that you know when i won the 200 im in 2010 it was this weird down year where i was two seconds slow and i'm not cheapening my accomplishments when i say this i give myself credit for this that everyone that had been in college the year before had access to the tech suits in the 2009 NCAAs and the times ballooned through the roof, right? And then I come in, I had never used an arena or a jacket. I, we were only allowed to use Speedo because Bob and Michael were very intense about that at NBAC. And I come in and I didn't care about the tech suits. And so I was able to move forward because I wasn't affected by it. And then, you know, when I finaled in 2012 and 2016 in the 200 IM at the Olympic trials, uh, guess what the event is where everyone that's good at it is already an Olympian by the last day, the 200 IM, And so people scratch out, people are a little checked out, but guess what? I'm not, I move forward. And so now best time in uh, January when I didn't have pool access um, outside of a backyard pool, which again, privilege, get it until September of last year. It's because I found a way to move forward. So now pulling back out of talking about myself, because I understand that, I'm really just trying to make a point. We really have to take the stock of the situation as zero, like neutral, not at a deficit. Because if you're putting yourself at a deficit, you're only climbing out of the hole. You have to take stock of reality as neutral, as what it is, because that's
0: how you move forward and start putting points on the board right? I really like that perspective, Austin, and I'm, I'm taking some notes because you, you said a lot of things that really resonated with me there. You said a phrase earlier, and I think this is a great segue for what we were just talking about. You said experiential learning. Mm-hmm. You were very fortunate from a very young age to have some tremendous coaches, and those coaches seem to progress to higher levels all the way through your NCAA experience, and now mm-hmm. really you're your own coach. And from the perspective that we've gleaned already, you have a lot of good ideas to remind yourself. But Mm -hmm. as an age grouper in the famous North Baltimore Aquatic Club with Tom Himes and John Cadigan and the whole crew, Scott Armstrong, Paul Yetter, Bob Bowman, Mm. going through that experience and using the phrase experiential learning, what are some things that you developed early on in that program that could be very intimidating for a lot of age group athletes? Yeah. The expectations are extraordinarily high. What was it like navigating that experience as a youngster? I was equipped in a way that was pretty unique. Um,
1: As many people know, my dad, BJ, was a pro baseball player for a long time. And his best season came when I was nine years old, eight years old. So I grew up in a household where my dad was an active, professional, famous athlete. And my mom, was a better athlete than the both of us. She just, because of women swimming in the eighties, there was no extensive career for her to have. So growing up in a household like that, where I'm going into, you know, the Orioles locker room when I'm six years old after games to see my dad and baseball was a scary thing to me, admittedly not of any fault of my dad, because it was tough to follow in his footsteps. And my mom's shadow just wasn't as long because it's not in the press as much. When you're six, it's hard to sort out what accomplishments are, unless they're in front of your
0: face. And Austin, so, she was close. She was she, narrowly she was, missed making the Olympic team. She was third in 84, that's correct. Um,
1: so when I got to MDAC, I was nine years old and I wasn't really like in on swimming. I was just, my dad. my dad and my mom just made me go to practice because I was really good at swimming in our backyard pool and I loved being underwater. I love, love, love just playing in the pool. And I'm gonna actually come back to that later if we talk about swimming that I'm doing right now. I loved to play. And so when I went to swim practice, I was immediately a natural. It is what it is, you know, some, a lot of people just have genetic gifts that end up being good at the sport. And, um, but I wasn't really aware, like they had this watch party for Michael at Meadowbrook for MBAC at the 2000 Olympics when he was 15. And, you know, I'm nine, 10 years old, the kids that I was friends with in that group have been swimming since they were six or seven. So they're like looking at the screen with their mouths agape, like, Michael's at the Olympics. And for me, I just come from, you know, at this time, my dad was at the Atlanta Braves. So he he was on this Atlanta Braves team that was, um, you know, first in the AL and was about to win their whatever straight divisional title. So I didn't care what some 15 year old was doing at the Olympics. I actually remember being like, he got, wait, he got fifth. That's not even a medal. And not because I was a brat, just because when you're younger, right, you, you think, you know, the Olympics, oh, Olympics medal, USA is supposed to get medals as well. You know, I grew up in a household where I was taught about how great USA was at the Olympics. So I think being removed from that when I first got started was really important. It gave me a very high level of precociousness. You know, I, I was early on having dialogue with my coaches. Um, John Burke was my first one, and actually Bob Bowman, they were my first uh, age group coaches. And I remember being pretty chatty with them on a, on a level, sort of level, not, you know, not feeling like I'm a kid, you know, talking up like, daddy, daddy, it was more just like, you know, like I felt like I was speaking to them actually from a young age. And I think that's the through line throughout my career that led to me wanting later on now at Hopkins to say, I want my athletes to have an ally and I wanna talk to them on a level playing field is my experience throughout NBC growing up. up. Uh, Tom Yetter, who is Paul's younger brother, um, Scott Armstrong, Paul Yetter, all of these people were like 27 to 35 when they were coaching me. I can't, uh, probably more in their twenties, more in their twenties, right? And so they had this young guy vibe and they all had kind of this respect for me to talk to me like person to person. It wasn't like a a condescending way. And I think that gave me space again, to not feel the weight of NBAC for a long time. You know, we had our group, we had this age group group uh, that Tom Yetter coached like the 12 and unders on our team. And I just wanted to go to practice and hang out with my friends. And then when I heard about All-Stars, my friends gone All-Stars when they were 10 and done well. And I wanted to do well at All-Stars when I was 12, cause they did well. So I I won All-Stars, I won Maryland States. And then it was like, well, you get a free basket if you go to zones. Well, I want to make zones. So I made zones. It wasn't any of this Michael Phelps footstep stuff, footsteps stuff really until I was like a high schooler and he was started, you know, the Beijing thing happened, right? Even like in 04 in Athens, I didn't really watch those Olympics that closely. So I think showing up when I was nine or 10 instead of six or seven and having another sport that kind of weighed over me as something that was a little bit more important really gave me, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, precociousness, just like a level of, I think aloof has a negative connotation, but just not getting swept up in it and feeling pressure from a young age and also
0: my parents did a
1: really good job of giving me that space as well
0: absolutely and and you know your your point is well taken that you were able to lean into probably some advice that that many other athletes your age don't necessarily have your parents are are titans in their own sports and then as an age grouper you you're having access to Bob Bowman and i think that that gives a lot of people some good perspective too austin because all too often i see in the coaching community When you first get started, and I got started at a very small Division III school, uh, coaches think that they will never be able to get to a certain level. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And Bob was coaching the age groupers and and doing it dutifully and probably enjoying it, knowing the way Mm -hmm. that his mind works, right? So I think it's really important for people to hear that. Here was Bob Bowman coaching some 10, 11, 12-year-olds.
1: And when, we, when I was a pro in his training group, uh, when I was in 2015 and 16, kind of like a full circle thing, I remember thinking about that. He would still talk to me about every once in a while, he would remember names of kids I was friends with when we were nine and 10 that he coached that quit swimming when they were 12. He hadn't thought about them in 10, 12, 13 years. So, yeah, Bob was definitely into that uh, at the time. But like, it wasn't even, and this is not on Bob, because I appreciate working with him later on, but I didn't really need to be coached by Bob Owen when I was eight. I th- I think that's lending to your point of um, what kids need when they're younger. I mean, Tom Yetter, who doesn't get the accolade, who didn't get the accolades at the time. He's the one that took me from You know this yappy 10 year old that was coming to practice to someone that was making zones at 12 and then winning zones at 14 and setting myself up to make the national junior team with scott armstrong the next year so as long as the coach is invested in what's going on with the kid starts giving them a sprinkling of equity obviously that varies from kid to kid i think i had a very strong sense of self when i was younger relative to other kids that gave me access to that equity and just allows that gives them space to allow their love for the sport blossom. Um, then it's probably the right coach for the kid. I mean, one thing that Tom did really well. We had this really t- tight knit group of boys in our group that were, you know, from age eleven to age fourteen. There was like six or seven of us that were thick as thieves. We did summer league together. We did. We would come to some practice together every day, and he would give us space to just kind of be little twelve year old jerks. <laughs> but it made me want to go to practice. Like I want to see my friends. That sounds awesome. And then it would make me better. Uh,
0: you know, I remember one time um, talking on the pool deck with Jason Turcotte. Um, This is back when he was at Stanford before he was at Dynamo. And um, he was watching a Pasa practice. And he had said to one of the, the assistant coaches at Passa who was yelling at some 12 year old kids, Hey, you got to let them play right? You mm-hmm. got to let them play. You, you, you got to let them enjoy why they're here. And Absolutely. Sounds like you guys had that there.
1: It is. There was a sense for play. I don't even remember the workouts we did when I was 12. I know it was good work. I really do. Like, I know I put in work, you know, and you have to put in work. I, I think that's super important. I, I really don't want any, anything I put out in the ether in this, this brief time that I have a platform to talk to make people think that I don't, think hard work matters hard work matters especially when you're a young kid you're setting up your aerobic engine for the rest of your life it also has to be a balance for play and the kids should not feel the weight of you know your own stuff that you're projecting onto them and that's a really hard thing to do I mean I'm I do it to my dog I I know that sounds (laughs) like I don't have a kid so that's all I got but like I want my dog to go to the bathroom and you know or, or go to the dog park, right? I'm like, dude, I'm trying to get you to the dog park, and the closer we get to the dog park, the more he freaks out, and is like, "Let me get to the dog park." Or like, sees a squirrel, sees another dog, and it's like, "Wait, this is about him." I just want him to get to the dog park, right? And it's a really good line that I was taught by Eric Thurston, who's an assistant coach at Boston at Boston College right now. He was my um, my fellow volunteer at UVA for the eighteen nineteen year. He said. And he was, he ran the UVA swim camp as, as head counselor. And he said, camp is for the campers. And I think that's the best summation of all of what we're talking about right now, which is, even though it really is really, really, really hard to not project your own stuff onto, you know, people that are in your charge, that are your wards, if you will, it's, it's an important thing to try to do because they didn't experience what you experienced, you know? It was something that my dad was really good at. I have to pull it back to him just because the influence was so massive growing up in a house where everyone knows who your dad is and you can't walk in a room without your dad walking in there first metaphorically. Right. And I was so scared to tell him I was going to quit baseball when I was 14 and he was into it and he got super into swimming and me and my uh, three other siblings all swam, uh, deep into our lives after that. And he still talks to me about college swimming to this day, even more than I know. I'll be like, dad, I, I actually don't know what's going on with Missouri at that dual meet last weekend. So it's a good example of just not projecting your own stuff uh, onto other people. And, and I do it as someone who does do that sometimes. And I do it when I coach sometimes.
0: It's, it's just important to keep tabs on. I really like, and I'm gonna share this with my staff today. Camp is for the campers, practice, is for our athletes. Mm-hmm. Practice is for our athletes to come and have that experience in their space. Now we shape it, but it's for them. And I think that's incredible perspective.
1: So- And we and we have bosses with expectations. Like I get that if you're coaching a program that's trying to break through the top 10, your AD expects, you know, for example, at Texas, um, you know, Wyatt and Eddie, they're never gonna drop out of the top 10. But A D the AD does expect every sport to try and compete to be top ten every year. So even a place like that, they haven't a directive they have to serve. So I totally get the balance that has to be made there that you have expectations for, for performance and the athlete's performance is your job. Totally get that. I just think that there's a roundabout way to get there that just involves a level of trust, I guess.
0: Absolutely. So he, here you are, you're a senior at North Baltimore. Mm -hmm. experienced everything that the program has to offer training with some of the best athletes in the world training underneath some of the most enthusiastic coaches in the world Mm -hmm. and now you head to one of the coolest cities in the United States Austin Texas and you start with the Longhorn program and Eddie Reese what was Mm -hmm. the transition like from Bob who you and I know is so super organized Mm the symphony of swimming that's playing in his head is so uh, astute. And and all of the plans are right down to the last minute detail. And then Eddie, who might have the same thing happening, but it seems it's, to all It's, all it's come. in his
1: DNA. It's in yeah. his DNA. It's not on a piece of paper. It's like oh. some sort of like microorganism thing. <laughs> and by the way, I, 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 I do know the question, but we just have to Bob was not my coach after I was eight years old. Right. But we are setting up. um, So are you saying when I first went to college? Yes. So the question you asked about Bob and Eddie, Bob was my coach after Eddie. So we can actually get to that then. Cool. But my coach in high school was Paul Yetter, who at the time was 29, 30 years old, coaching Katie Hoff, um, coaching myself, Felicia Lee, Elizabeth Pelton, Brennan Morris. Uh, I think every single one of those people made a national and dan madwed so that's a bunch of people that made a national a team or an olympic team at some point in their lives and then me um who is still doing very well so the contrast between paul and eddie paul came in and he is from the school of murray stevens and bob bowman where everything was mapped out practice was written out beforehand um he was keeping tabs he was mapping out taper to the yardage you know, this subject that day and to answer your question is I got there and my experience with older coaches up to that point was that they were more you go do this and there was no equity and I was basically just forced to do stuff and I had a really bad taste in my mouth about that at that point and then I get there and Eddie is, I mean, older, older than Paul at this point, I'm not going to call him old but, you know, spades a spade. And um, was still, and Chris, both of these guys that had more success than any coach that I had dealt with up to this point were so unassuming. And they were just basically giving us the keys to so much of what was going on. And uh, coming back to the trust that I talked about, the equity that we had in the culture of our team, the goals that we set. I mean, even just reading us as he's delivering a workout and how we respond to like, oh no, Eddie, let's not do that today. And then he'll be like, he'll read it. And it's like, actually they do need to do a little less today. And it's just, and then Chris, who is just like the empathy engine because he knows everyone inside and out and is the most skilled person I've ever met at putting his brain in your brain.
0: I wanted to talk to you specifically about Coach Chris Kubik, because earlier in in the episode here, when you were talking, you talked immediately. Your first inclination was to talk about when you first started as a volunteer, you wanted to connect with the athletes. And I thought Mm -hmm. of Chris, and maybe that's where some of that started. But when you look at a coach like Chris Kubik or a Jack Roach or a Harvey Humphreys at Georgia or Ted Knapp, Mm -hmm. Skip Kenny's assistant at Stanford, They all had a a unique ability to tap into. And I I think Jack Roach and Chris are probably the masters at it. Um, Mm -hmm. So talk to us about that. Talk to us, unpack a little of Chris Kubik.
1: Well, I think if you map out, um, by the way, Chris and Jack are masters of that. Harvey, having never swum for him, but have known him for a long time, he might be better at it than both of them because... He's very good. Well, because he was having the Georgia guys do stuff that made me want to just like curl up in a ball while we're doing, you know, pretty mid D mid like right down the line stuff at Texas, Georgia's obviously chowing down on yardage. And I'd hear from Chase Kalish later on kind of stuff that Harvey would make them do. Maybe, maybe Harvey's the best of of all of them at it because of the kind of work he had to manage out of them. But anyway, Chris, um, Talking about connecting with the athletes, it is it that was the starting point for my goals. Was I always felt like Chris was the one that could pierce the veil because a lot of coaches and I I don't I try not to do this, but a lot of coaches have like this weird like professionalism veil where you're almost like they like don't want the athlete to know like what's going on. It's it's almost like it's got to be played to their vest, if you will, and it's their plan. And Chris was really good at like the me- like going meta on that and piercing through it and being like, yeah, I totally get how this is going. Like, I got it guys. And he was so, so, so informed about everything that was going on with us that he would say stuff in a meeting and be like, wait, Chris knows about that. That's crazy. But then he would use that to inform something that was empathetic about how we were feeling. And I think wielding wielding is the wrong word having the capability to wield what Chris wielded and using it in a way that was so focused on other people you know the the work that he put in to be informed to understand every swimmer inside and out to understand his head coach inside and out and to use it in a way that was completely focused outward away from himself was very impactful on me I mean, his only job in his mind, and I'm reducing it and not, and speaking for him, he can speak for himself, was to support Eddie and support the program, right? Like give everything that he could to doing that. And the fact that this guy could have been a head coach anywhere else in the country, which is something we would say to ourselves when we were at practice, and really put himself in the position of being a true number two head coach that whether him and Eddie were discussing something behind the scenes, when he was out on the deck, they were in concert with each other, and he was speaking along those lines while also managing what how the athlete was feeling too. So those are the two things I try to manage. Is if Scott and I are, and March and I, uh, Marge, our our assistant coach, say something in the office together, I'm out there, not breaking rank on that, but also kind of doing like a meta veil piercing thing where I tell the athlete without crossing some sort of insubordination line. Like, yeah, man, I totally get what's going on here. Like, I totally get that we're kicking your butt today. Yeah, you got finals coming up. That that really stinks, man. That really sucks. But this is what we're doing today. And I'm not pissed at you about it. I'm not going to ram it down your throat, but this is what we got to get done. And you just got to trust that because I'm being empathetic with you and trying to show understanding of where I'm coming from giving this practice to you, that you're going to give me your best and just do what you can that day, even if we are kicking your butts this week. Or, you know, Scott asked us to really ramp up the work or crush them in one place or another. Um, it's a balance between empathy and also executing what your head coach um, asks you to do without insubordination because that's really super
0: important. I, I love that response, Austin. And, and, and you know, the, the thing that I'm getting from listening to you is you were aware, even as an athlete, that a coach like Chris Kubik was a bridge. He was a bridge between the athletes in the program and the head coach. You just happen to have a head coach who was also very finely tuned with what his athletes needed or wanted or what their goals were. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a, a famous quote by Eddie, and it's something along the lines of, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and the rest will take care of itself. Talk, talk to me about the importance of team at Texas and the moment that you kind of understood that I'm really part of something bigger than myself. Uh,
1: holy crap, I can't believe you brought up that line because um, I worked an edited version of that line into my wedding vows with my wife. Um, that's, that's how, and, and I had heard a different interpretation of the line at the time, it was take care of yourself, take care of your teammates, take care of Texas. I think both work perfectly. And it also, you answered your question with the line, is that sums up everything that comes into being a part of a team, a company, a partnership, a friendship, a household. Um, Number one, you have to take care of yourself. You have to get your own oxygen mask on the airplane before you secure someone else's oxygen mask. And by the way, the wedding vow was, I'm gonna take care of you, I'm gonna take care of our family, or I'm gonna take care of myself, take care of you, take care of our family, and the rest will take care of itself. Like take care of myself, also take care of my wife, who is my partner in this partnership, right? And then take care of the marriage, which is like the, it's it's like the the bigger picture thing that we are managing together, okay? So to Texas, you have to take care of yourself and that's what those guys do, You, I mean, no matter how much you care about the team or are someone who's naturally inclined to helping other people before yourself, your job is still to be successful as an individual for the University of Texas. Swimming is an individual sport. We're not passing the ball to each other on the court. So at the end of the day, the beginning of your job is putting yourself in the best place to succeed as an athlete and succeed as a student and succeed in life. I mean, when you succeed in life, the program looks good. So start there. Then once you are... centered and settled, take care of your teammates. And what that means is being there for them. But you have to come from a place that you're not pulling too much from number one, pulling out of the pool of taking care of yourself, right? You can do it for short stretches of time, but if you go above and beyond taking care of your teammates and putting your brain power out of yourself and into how your teammates are doing, then you're pulling away from the most base thing, which is taking care of yourself. Um, So take care of your teammates and not be a jerk to them. And then lastly, what we were taught, take care of Texas. And what that means is take care of this nebulous, nebulously defined thing that is our swim team. And people might think, well, that's just taking care of your teammates. No, When when you're in a college swimming locker room, this thing that you all create together, this like shared, this, this shared narrative you have of what a swim team is, it is something bigger than yourselves. I always thought that was such a trite thing here in growing up, like you're representing something bigger than yourself. And then you actually are charged with taking care of something that is invisible, that doesn't really exist outside of our own imaginations. It's, it really is something that physically exists in your mind when it's created. And so you have to take care of it. Everywhere you go in public, you're representing Texas when you swim for them. Everywhere you go, when you leave Texas, you are representing Texas. Um, and so taking care of that, but guess what? When teams function in a, in a way that is maybe not the best, and this has happened, uh, there were periods of this that happened when I was there, is people, all good people, all hard workers, stop taking care of themselves because they put so much into this super, super important idea of we have to take care of Texas. And guess what? You're grinding away at the self. You're not taking care of yourself again. So it has to happen in that order, right? And so what did I learn about being a part of of a team? When I was there, when the team was in a good place, I was very externally motivated. I could swim outside of myself representing Texas. So that was my definition of being a part of a team there was just doing it for Texas. So there were long stretches of time where I either didn't take care of myself or I didn't take care of my teammates or I didn't take care of Texas. And the times where I found my way back, I cleaved out everything that I had going on that was external and just focused internally. And that would that led
0: me back to where I wanted to go. It has to start with the individual. Um, what I wanted to talk about with, with you next, Austin, is, you know, I don't have intimate knowledge of what it must be like to be on deck with Eddie and a coach like Chris every single day. But the times where nationals have been there, the times where, you know, even at a big meet or a Grand Prix, Eddie's door is wide open and anybody can go in there. And he just seems to have this great sense of humor. Talk about how important that is to the culture there.
1: It's very important because he puts himself, I used the word unassuming earlier, and that's the, that is what he projects out there is that he might secretly have an ego that gets stroked by everything that happens. Uh, he's not putting that out in the world. You know, we went in season 2010 and we come back and he's just really proud of us that we all got better and went best times at the meet. That's what it was about. And he was proud that we experienced that for ourselves. Um, I think a couple good examples of his humor, him and Chris really, I think one of the things that comes with experience and this is something that I've tried to work on in my own life that I think I'm pretty good at now. Is as people experience, have experience, and experience success, and experience these really cool situations in their life, they know how to make the special moments truly special for other people. And so, for example, 2010 NCAA's, he we had a lot of pressure on ourselves. 2009, and I I don't expect people to understand deep college swimming lore, but in 2009, Texas won in very disappointing fashion when Auburn rallied around uh, Richard Quick on the men's side uh, being diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and won when they were supposed to get like fifth. And the Texas team had been favored very heavily. So three classes on this team in 2010 had been on the receiving end of that. And the meet was in the state of Texas. So it was a lot of like pressure and we felt a lot of pressure. And a week out of the meet, um, Eddie made a deal with us that if we went, you know, X on a pace day, he would throw on a full body laser and do some breaststroke. Little known, well, not little known, everything, everybody knows everything about Eddie. He was the 200 breaststroke record holder when he was at Florida on some level I don't know if it was NCAA or SEC. And he set the 100 record going on the 200. So he was going to show us some of his breaststroke. So a week out of the meet, he comes into the locker room wearing his laser and a pair of sweatpants. And he's like waving at everybody, like, hey, and we're all going nuts losing it. And he does that before practice. And it just completely pops the tension balloon. Or another time when we were deep in summer training, getting our butts kicked. And we feel this building pressure about nationals. Um, There was this, you know, uh, Jackson Wilcox, who was kind of our vocal leader around this time period for a couple of years. He's like, everybody, when we get to the wall in the next one, everyone drop down underwater and just stay there. Don't worry about missing the interval. Everybody just stay underwater for as long as you can. Now, the ego coach, Myself included, I might've gotten annoyed about this, right? You might get annoyed, like guys, we're trying to get stuff done here. Nationals is coming up. Eddie jumped in the pool while we were underwater. It was like, and we, we, guess what? We got up, we all went nuts and we worked our butts off the rest of practice. So-
0: And then how long, you know, how much longer and for how many years are you gonna tell that story? You know? a long
1: time. And and that's what I mean about making the special moments special. Um, I think it's really important to pull our heads out of the weeds. I really think the, the three, that 3% special is as important as the 97% nuts and bolts. It's, I focus a lot on that 3% these days, both as a coach and as an athlete. And it's something that I started developing when I was especially at Texas. And I think Eddie's influence was a big part of that.
0: You know, one thing all coaches should hear, and, and I'm gonna write this down is learn how to make the special moments special. Mm-hmm. Figure out what... in their way.
1: In their way. Remember, yes. camp is for the campers.
0: Yes. And and what a what a thing to try to learn to realize and, and have recognition of when something is special between the athletes, and we need to highlight this, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. what, what a great idea. Um and And circling back, you know, what do you think separates somebody like Eddie Reese, who's won so many NCAA titles, coached mm-hmm. so many uh, Olympic medalists what what What's something that separates him? The
1: best answer that that not a lot of people give is Chris Kubik is and now Wyatt Collins is why Eddie um, is different from everyone else, and it's because they filled the role. Uh, Chris trained Wyatt to have it and that's why they didn't miss a beat and they won three more NCAA titles after Chris left. They see themselves as just what what does Eddie need and they they project this um, this amazing um not a I don't think bubble's the right word I really don't but but it's it works in such concert in such sync that there's no ambition not ambition there's no thoughts outside of the partnership and the relationship and making the team better, right? Texas is a place where you end up. So Chris Kubik isn't thinking about hopping to the next program because he did a good job for Eddie. He's thinking, how do I make Texas swimming the best program on earth for the next 40 years? Okay. And so once Eddie found the vein with You know, like, like we both said, it's in, it's in his DNA, the way that he coaches and he's got, like, he's the guy, he's got the plan. And Chris did some coaching too. And Eddie, well, a lot of coaching, you know, they're both amazing coaches, but Chris's role that he filled so expertly was giving Eddie space. You know, how do I tinker this situation perfectly so that Eddie is in the best position to be a coach? I also think it it helps that he came up in a time You know, he's obviously at this point, probably the longest tenured coach in the NCA, one of them, and the most successful of the longest tenured coaches. He came up in the time when the NCAA was just much more chill and there was just less expectation on what was going on. I wasn't there in the 80s, so I'm talking out of my butt when I say that, but it is different from how things are now, where everyone's hyper-focused on every single day. You know, he carved out a legacy for himself by the time, you know, 1992 rolled around. so creating that space for himself early in his career has given him space now that no one's bugging him about what he should be doing and every coach deals with people bugging them about what they should be doing that's the first answer that's the contrarian answer now about eddie and praising him it really is that he's able to see what people need without ego It, it really really is that he prides himself at his very, very core, at the very root of himself that he just knows what people need. And being able to cut through to that without his own stuff being projected onto them is probably his best skill because it allows him to think about exactly what is needed in the moment. And a lot of people think they know that, but Eddie actually does know what people need. And it, he cuts through a veil that is just much deeper than people understand. So that, that is my actual praising Eddie answer.
0: I love it, man. I love it. And and you and I are going to have to do an episode too because this is great stuff. And I haven't even gotten to the tip of the spear of some of the stuff I want to ask you. But uh, before we close today out in the next 10 or 15 minutes, I, I do want to ask you this. And a lot of people are excited about this. Why are you swimming so fast right now? <laughs> Again, the root is in seeing the opportunity
1: uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, if I hadn't done that, then I would probably have gone backwards in the last year. So there's that. On top of that, I started a training plan because I had been training on and off, you know, from a hobby perspective since about January of 18. I'd gone through phases. I was figuring things out. I briefly thought I wanted to be a 200 IM or 200 backstroker again. And I think in September of 19 is when I started creating the theses for my training plan which is when i go to the pool i do what i want to do and that's it and the training plan has grown organically since then now why am i able to do that so september of 19 i was 28 years old at that point i had had 15 years of experience training at the highest level with the best coaches and i had been coaching uh my year at uva uh, 18, 19, when I was a volunteer, I had access to just so much amazing information that they're doing there. I decided to trust my knowledge. And this comes back to how I coach athletes. I trust my knowledge that I have. And every day I just take care of myself. Remember I said that I want all of my athletes to feel like they have an ally, you know, someone with them on the journey that they're going through long stretches of my career where I was maybe going through some, some gullies. I didn't even feel like my own ally. I felt like I was just, you know, a ghost pushing through practice because three, three months from now I had, had NCAs, but then I lose three month stretches of my life in terms of how I think about it. I had great times in those three months and I cherish them, but then those three months are then retroactively shaded by how I did at that next meet. So if I did great at NCS, wow, I had an amazing January to March. I'll cherish those times forever. Oh, I had a bad N.C.A.S. Well, January and February, all of a sudden are just really crappy. And I don't even think about any good times that I had there. So I wasn't even my own ally. I, I was this weird passenger, just kind of pushing through rough stuff for this end goal that I put a ton of pressure on and wouldn't always achieve. So I coached myself the way that I coach my athletes. I only do what I want to do on that day. And I started slow, patiently, understanding that I have limitless time to do this experiment. I want to swim till I'm—I mean, Tom Brady's in the Super Bowl at forty-three, so you know, thirty-year-old NBA players are just now getting their second max contract because they're still in the prime of their careers. So, trusting my expertise, trust uh, that I have had access to—not my own expertise—trusting um, the genetic gifts that I have. It is what it is, trusting um, that in the aggregate, as long as I'm going to the pool and giving an honest effort of doing what I want that day, I'm gonna move forward. And what's grown since September of 19, where I did have a base before that of training and I've always been very active, is the the training plan that has led me to go you know, 49 and 22.5, with, from being a 200 and 400 IMR all the way through age 25. It really has grown from what do I want to do that day. And now I actually have an actual training plan that I execute every week. It grew organically and, and I give it space to, to evolve and change. I don't get too attached or uh, superstitious about any, any one thing that I'm doing. And I allow my interests. Oh, part two. I said, I'd come back to play. I give myself space to play whenever I want. So We talked about giving kids space to do that, right? 12 year olds need room to grow love for the sport. Doing these cold plunges is space to play. When my wife and I travel somewhere for a trip, I like to seek out whatever body of water I can find and hop in it. You know, some friend, uh, we were out in Colorado um, for a friend's wedding and we were all on a hike around this lake And I was like, I want to get in this lake. It's We just had this sweaty hike. And I was like, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to get in and play. I don't really care. You guys can get in if you want. (laughs) And I think that's the same way with my training. It's I'm doing this training. I'm going to go play. I don't care if whoever this everyone else is, because I swim mostly by myself. I don't care if I'm not supposed to play. That's what I'm going to do. And you guys can try it if you want as well. And always having that lever to pull when through long stretches of my my old swimming career, I didn't have, I never felt like I had that lever to pull. I never felt like I could quit or take time off, especially when I got to college and pro and the stakes got higher. I always felt like I had to keep pressing. There was never a step back that I could take. There was never this escape hatch I could jump through to give myself a reset. And the one time that I was actually pushed to a brink uh, when I was in college, and actually gave myself a re, uh, reset. It's actually after my junior year um, I had my worst NCAs ever, and I was in a really, really bad spot with swimming. And the month of April, I mentally, literally, just checked out from swim practice. I went, I went last in the lane. April and May, I, it, I still did the work, but I really focused on a couple classes I liked in school. I gave myself space to kind of play around with some weird stroke stuff in practice. And by the time June rolled around, I had totally reset and I got fourth at trials and went under two minutes for the first time in the 200 IM. And then later made wugs in the 200 free after not being a 200 freestyler my whole life. So I always want to have access to that, what I had that April when I reset myself without it needing to be an emergency. And that's number three is seeking out things that people generally need for fixing things that are that are at a deficit about themselves and taking them and using them as an advantage for myself right not waiting until i need something to use it so go people go to pilates because they're 70 years old and their back's messed up right i go to pilates because it is a competitive advantage for me or you know I've seen a therapist on and off for a couple years uh, to deal with a uh, panic disorder that I've had a long, a long thing with. But I now do mental stuff on my own time that people might seek out when they're at a deficit. Now I use it for a competitive advantage because I use all those years of seeing those therapists understanding their techniques to now apply it to move forward. So those are the three things is doing what I want at practice, giving myself space to play and use and always being in a space where things that are only used when your backs against the wall, just using them. Now move forward with them. Like they work for people at a deficit because they work. So you don't just have to move from negative two to zero. You can move from zero to two with that same stuff as well. You know, having that escape hatch for yourself, even when you're doing great, guess what? uh, Tuesday, um, I went to the pool, you know, and I'm out of this meat and you'd think, oh, he's just going to hammer the water. He's, you know, so full of confidence right now. I was feeling really, really bummed out that day. Um, My dog had kept my wife and I up all night the the night before. I was stressed out about a couple things that I had going on and I did 200 yards and I hopped out and I went home, but I trust the aggregate. I'm not doing that every single day. It was just that day I needed to pull that lever and I did and then I dipped. And while and by the way within those 200 yards I gave myself space to play around with some new techniques. So, don't wait to until things
0: go bad to pull the levers that'll help you move forward. I love it. You know, I think you're going to find as you move on here buddy that you're going to be walking the pool deck for a very long time. I hope so. Again, Tom Brady, 43. And I even mean beyond that, Austin. You might have a stopwatch oh, okay. in the back pocket. Well, I,
1: I will on Monday. I'm going back to work for, for the dudes at Hopkins I, uh, and the ladies. And I, I actually haven't spun a stopwatch around my finger in March. And I, I kind of miss doing that. Everyone's got their little ticks that they have at their <laughs> stopwatch. And I actually
0: kind of miss that. It's going to be nice. It's like uh, an old friend's that stopwatch. We're gonna listen. We're gonna jump on again in like a month or so and do a part two because all the things that you've said require more exploration. And I only bring guests back that we really, really like. So we'll, we're we're gonna be excited about that. But before I let you go, two things: talk to us about what you're doing with your with your new suit design, man. Talk about your relationships there. Sure.
1: Um, I developed
0: a line of suits with Fike
1: Swim. Um, you can tell by the sweatshirt, I'm super into it. <laughs> it's my signature suit and I'm really proud of it I grew up and it's basically I design a suit and there's other Fikeswim ambassadors that have designed their own suit designs and it's a reflection of what matters to each person and my suit is a reflection of what really matters to me and also looks good on someone's body it's got my signature on it because Anything that you put your name on, that's your responsibility. And I feel very proud of what I created. And this the design that I landed on with James Fike, CEO, that I designed the suit with, is that of the bandana. Um, the bandana, you know, I was trying to think of something maybe kind of like blue jeans. That's like very like American, very classic, very u- ubiquitously understand and is cool no matter how old you are. And it's also a representation throughout history of people that walk kind of a roguish path, that walk outside the lines that seek out what's better instead of what's given to them. Uh, I think a lot about like the Cowboys and the Settlers of the Old West. Teddy Roosevelt wore a bandana. Um, it's actually theorized that a lot of the Revolutionary War soldiers in George Washington wore Paisley bandanas because French fashion was in at the time, you know, Um rappers and rock stars, they love busting out bandanas. And so I think a it looks cool. It's a pretty dope design. And I'm really proud of it. But symbolically, for me, I wrote my name on it. But I designed it for anyone who feels like they can walk the path of the outsider and be comfortable with it and understand that they walk that path, because they're finding everything that that life has to offer instead of accepting what's given to them. So did you, ever,
0: did you ever hear the story of the Boston College lacrosse alum who had the red bandana in the trade centers and saved multiple, multiple people? No. You'll have to that's amazing. You'll have to check that out on YouTube. The the, the survivors remembered him because he had a red bandana. That's incredible. Well really? that's,
1: that's another
0: like. yeah. That's another um, Bad Mama Jamma that that rocked a bandana. Um, I want to uh, ask you some quick fire questions. And the first one's going to be near and dear to your heart. Ryan Lochte, world record, 154 flat. Is that in danger in Tokyo? Um, it dep- it, I think it depends on
1: uh, Chase as much as it does Ryan. I, I, I assume Ryan's working his butt off, but the strides that uh, Chase Kalish has made in 200 IM over the last couple years and the way that he's grown into a very like, strong adult body just depending on where his focus is at, I think he's just as capable, capable of saying that world record
0: as Ryan is. When we talk about Michael Phelps 400 IM 403, how close are we, do you think, to seeing that be uh, in danger of, of getting broken? Uh, that's,
1: that is a tougher one. I think it's got to be from a, young, a younger person that maybe grew up on that 403 and saw it maybe when they were eight years old and trained themselves to do it to break it later on so if it comes from someone it's not going to be because i predicted I, i honestly that 403 was a pretty pretty unbelievable feat um again hinges on chase um or I, i can't remember his name but the the japanese guy that beat him last time i think the 200 im is more possible than the 400 im personally
0: we uh, we might be looking at a 50 freestyle that requires a sub 21 second performance to win a gold medal. Do you think mm-hmm. uh, more than one person goes under 21? I think uh, it depends on people's
1: hierarchical mental. It depends on Caleb Dressel's competitors relationship to him. If they see what Caleb's doing and they say, I can do that too, then someone else will be there with him. But if they're And they don't want to admit this, but if deep down they're like, man, Caleb's setting the pace for us, then I think Caleb's going to have to do it first and then someone else will follow. Um, He seems to be the one that's been shifting the paradigm for everyone else. And then everyone else fills in the the gap. Um, So unless there's someone out there who's just full of, you know, full of gumption is like, yeah, I'm as good as Caleb. And they actually are close, but that, that really depends on, people's confidence levels and how they feel about their own relationship to Caleb's success. So, and I think most people do not feel like they're on the level of Caleb, whether they want to admit it or not.
0: One thing that I love that Brett Hawk talks about all the time is uh, the ready room decides the ready room decides the race, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so neat to kind of unpack those moments, but um, Austin, listen, man, this has been so awesome. We're going to have a part two in like a month you mentioned some things that I want to do some more deep diving into and and you and I will talk about that but thanks so much for your time on the fitter and faster coaches corner this episode will be available either Tuesday evening or Friday morning and we hope to have you guys come back next week Austin how can people get in touch with you if they want to contact you or have questions sure um direct
1: questions Austin at procornerpodcast.com Instagram Twitter and Facebook I'm just my name and I'm the only Austin Serhoff I've checked so if you just type my name in uh, as the username at Austin Serhoff then it'll pop up on all three of those platforms. I also manage a podcast that is I guess in name a cousin to yours called Pro Corner. Um, uh, no relation in terms of where the name came from but it is a really nice coincidence that I'm here today and that is at Pro Corner Podcast for any updates um, that and that's on Instagram and then just check out the pod a lot of what i talk about here i try to draw out of my guests that i have on the podcast and we'll have rowdy Gaines next week uh coming on yeah and rowdy and i got rowdy and i actually got to chat back when he was at the isl um but a lot of what we are what we talked about is uh is evergreen content it's it's not timely to the isl and he has a lot of really thoughtful insights into a lot of stuff throughout his own career and throughout the swimming world so check it out and then reach me, like I said, over email or Instagram.
0: Those are the two that I check the most. Austin Sirhoff, Awesome, man. Can't wait to do this again with you soon. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Bye, Michael. Thank you. Take care, buddy.